We're going to be drawing to a close today our summer series called Shadowlands. Um, and incidentally, it is my last Sunday in the preacher's perch here at St. Peter's. Cindy and I are moving in four weeks. So we'll be around for the next few Sundays, but I won't be preaching. This, this is it. Uh, that said, I could not ask for a better portion of Scripture with which to conclude. The focus today is 2 Samuel chapter 7. That continues from where we left off two weeks ago. Steve spoke last week on a different topic, so this picks up where we, where we left off two weeks ago. And this chapter, to say the least, contains a profound theological message. All the commentators agree. One of them puts it this way. This passage occupies the dramatic theological center of the Samuel corpus. It is the pinnacle of God's interaction with his beautiful yet thoroughly broken creation up to this point in the Bible. It is a precious chapter. Related to this, I think it's worth noting that it was while reading this very chapter that John Newton became expansively conscious of God's grace. That's how one historian puts it. And out of that experience that he had in 2 Samuel 7, he was inspired to write the hymn, Amazing Grace. Speaking of grace, it's all over the text today. In the Bible, grace simply means that salvation is from the Lord. That's how all the Old Testament prophets put it. Salvation is a gift from God. It's gratuitous. It's undeserved. We don't earn God's love and approval. He bestows those on us. Eugene Peterson puts it this way. He says, Jesus is the descent of God into our lives just as they are, not the ascent of our lives to God, hoping that he might approve when he sees how hard we try. Folks, that is what differentiates Christianity from all other religions in the world, so far as I know, so far as I have been taught. In other religions, you get saved by the teachings of the founder, by following those teachings, by keeping them. That is what is decisive in being saved, but not with Christianity. Christianity, you're not saved by the teachings of the founder. You're saved by the founder himself, by God himself, which is why Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus doesn't just show us the way. He is the way. Salvation is from the Lord. That is the mega theme of the entire Bible, and it radiates through right here in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It surfaces in a stirring exchange between David and God. Just like in Vancouver, their conversation centers on housing. So along these lines, we're going to begin with the house that David wants to build, and then we're going to concentrate on the house that God intends to build. And finally, we're going to consider what it might mean, what it does mean for us to abide in the house that God builds for us. So if you've got a Bible, keep it handy. When you work through a text more slowly, you come to see all sorts of things that you might otherwise miss. The house that David plans to build. Look at verses 1, 2, and 3. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God, it dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Well, go and do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Okay, so after more than a decade, almost two decades, in fact, David is finally the undisputed leader in Israel. Uh, the Philistines, the external enemies, they are at bay. Jerusalem has been set up as the new capital, and the Ark of God has been brought there. Everything's coming together. It's been rather chaotic up to this point in the Samuel story. Now, in the midst of this peacetime, David constructs a house for his family and for his administration, and it's made of cedar. That's code for luxury. Cedar was an import product. In notable contrast with David's new plush abode, uh, the Ark of God is domiciled in a dingy tent. David's troubled about this. Something's not right. Why am I in a tower and God's in a tent? Now, we already know that David is ambitious for God's name, and so he decides to take action. 
Something more like a cathedral would be appropriate for the Lord. So David consults the prophet Nathan. He was kind of like the king's pastor during this time. Verse 3 tells us that Nathan was equally enthused about this prospect. I think just like most of us pastors, Nathan was undoubtedly thrilled to see a congregant transition from, from a receiving posture to a giving posture. That's the pastor's dream, uh, to see someone desiring to give rather than to take. We pastors spend, as you might know this, we spend most of our time helping people who are after something from God. And we're supposed to know how to help you get it. That's a good thing. We're glad to do that. We pray for you. But in 2 Samuel 7, David is bucking this trend. He shows up at Nathan's house and says, I want to do something for God. And I think that's why Nathan's support is immediate and uncritical, to quote one commentator. He gives a big thumbs up. But then God turns that thumb upside down. Glance at verse 4 and 5. But the same night... The word of the Lord came to Nathan. He said, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? Oops, Nathan spoke too soon. He forgot to pray. Phone rings in the middle of the night. Your building permit has been revoked, at least temporarily. <laughs> God's response to David sums up quite simply as, not you and not yet. Not you and not yet. Let's look a bit further down, verses 12 and 13. This is God speaking. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers when you die, I will raise up an offspring after you and he shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name. Here's the deal. At one level, this text is saying that there will one day be a temple for God in the capital city of Jerusalem. Yet David's going to be long gone by the time it's built and it's going to be built by one of his heirs. You can read about that in the book of 1 Kings. But at the same time, there's a big question mark that surfaces uh, in this incident. Why does the Lord say, not you, not yet, to David about this temple? Why does God seem to throw a bucket of cold water on a blazing a heart of passion and desire to build a house for God? There are several reasons for this. I want to focus in on one of them today. Look at verses 6 through 8. This is God speaking. I've not lived in a house since the day I brought the people of Israel from Egypt up to this day. And I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I moved with the people of Israel, did I ever speak a word with any of the judges or leaders? Did I, did I command any of my shepherds saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So the God of the Bible is the God who values his freedom. He likes to be able to come and go as he, to do as he desires. He doesn't want to be un, under anyone's thumb or in anyone's pocket. God is sovereign. That's how the theologians put it. God is no person's debtor. And here's what, here's what we really need to appreciate in this. God's declaration in these verses cuts against a very deeply entrenched pagan religious sensibility. It was everywhere common in the ancient Near East. And the fingerprint of this pagan religious sensibility is on David, and it's even on Nathan. Let me explain. In the ancient Near East, everybody built temples for their gods. They built them like we build roads. And just like roads, they were very popular with the people. How come? Because it was a way of ensuring that your gods stayed put. If you build it, they will not just come, they will stay. Field of Dreams, a little bit old for this, a little bit older of a reference for this group, sorry. Okay. If you make God a house, if you make your God a house, he or she will take up residence. And they will be grateful for your helping hand. You've given them shelter, and pagan gods need food, clothing, and shelter just as much as the people who worship them. And so you've done them a favor. And out of appreciation, those gods need to pour out blessing over your land. It's almost obligatory. That's the core of 
the, the pagan religious sensibility. It's tit for tat. It's crassly utilitarian. You scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. And the construction of temples was an essential feature of this whole system. In other words, you've got to woo your gods. You've got to flatter them. You've got to keep them tied down. You've got to cage them so that their blessing will persevere over your land. Now, the scholars say that Nathan and David would have taken this religious sensibility for granted, but Yahweh does not take it for granted. Yahweh, that's God's personal name in the Old Testament. Yahweh will not be domesticated. He will not be managed. Look again at verse 5. Would you presume to build me a house in which to dwell? Would you try to put me into a cage to guarantee my presence and my blessing? Yahweh didn't ask for a temple. and He's never needed one. That's verses 6 through 8. He, he actually only requested an ark, a little box, something that is mobile. You see, like many of you, Yahweh's into camping and hiking. Uh, he's an adventurous pilgrim. He likes to hike around the world and share his goodness. Didn't want a temple. Wanted something mobile. And we should also note that his blessing over Israel has never been curtailed because of a lack of a temple. The continuance of this God's blessing does not depend on getting him in a cage. It depends on his covenant. It depends on his covenant. That just means his sheer desire to bless, to save. God gives his word about this desire, and God's yes always means yes. It comes to this. God rejects David's dream to build a temple because there's a bit of presumption in it. According to one commentator, in this moment, David's request, perhaps unwittingly, David's request is poised at the balance of, quote, glad yielding and manipulative utility. And the line between those two things can be a little bit thin sometimes. In other words, David's temple motives may be on the one hand very sincere, but at the same time there's something suspect about the whole request. There's something problematic about it. Scholar Walter Brueggemann concludes that at this particular interval in the history of the people of Israel, what God needs most from his people is not a temple, is not a house. He needs his people to learn from brain to bone that he is not just another tribal God. Uh, that's where David needs to focus his energies as the leader. Before any temple is built, the concept of God's sovereignty and God's freedom needs to be thoroughly established in the hearts and minds and the imagination and the practice of the people. You don't put me on your mantelpiece. I will not be caged. I will not be managed. I will not be manipulated. That is what God is spelling out here. He has to do it over and over and over again in the Old Testament. Yahweh does not need people to take care of him. That's the job. To, he's the one who takes care of us. That's the job description he's given for himself. He's done it in the past, as verse 6 reminds. You see that reference to Egypt in verse 6? That was a place of slavery. Yahweh liberated the people. He did that. God's also taking care of his people in the present. That's verse 7 and 8. God pulled David out of obscurity to be a leader so that he could help turn Israel into a beautiful community in an ugly world. God has been acting to work for his people. Here's the point. Before any temple can be erected in Jerusalem... Everybody, the people, the king, the prophet, everybody needs a bit of a detox from pagan religious sensibilities. They need to know that when it comes to the God of the Bible, if there ever is a temple, it will not be a cage. It's time to start thinking outside of that religious box. God will permit a temple only when the people come to know that a temple is not about securing his presence as much as celebrating his presence. 
Now, that's a subtle but crucial spiritual lesson, and if it's not instilled in the hearts of the people, it could actually, a temple could actually be disastrous. It could actually become a huge distraction because it vastly misrepresents the nature of this God. Are you tracking with me here? And what, what we're talking about is, is akin to something that's known as symbol distortion. It ha- actually happens all the time. Many of you will recognize this bull. It's the Wall Street bull. Um, where's Catherine? Thank you, Catherine. Uh, this is a symbol of offensive capitalism, the bull market. That's why the Occupy movement started right next to this bull. The bull is regarded as a symbol for the financial firms that the Occupy movement opposes. But guess what? That is not, in fact, what that bull was meant to symbolize. The guerrilla artist who put it there in 1987, his intention was the exact opposite. The Wall Street bull was crafted as a symbol of courage and resilience on the part of the American people over and against the Wall Street financial institutions that caused the financial recession in 1987. So ironically, it has been commandeered as an emblem for the financial institutions it was actually meant to chide. So the bull is not a symbol for what Occupy is against so much as a symbol for what it is for. How about them apples? That's a modern example of symbol distortion, and it helps us understand, I think, why God vetoes the house that David wants to build. In this historical context, that house would have the opposite of the intended effect, at this moment at least. It would promote confusion about God's character and nature, and in the Old Testament, that kind of confusion equals idolatry. That means you worship something apart from God, which includes a false apprehension of God. And that creates all kinds of problems. Just look at the rest of the Old Testament. But on this theme, by way of application, we also need to look at our own lives. You see what's going on with David's temple request here, the problem with it? It still happens all the time. I'm talking to those of you who are Christians now. David's error is so often and so easily my error. I can be super sincere in my devotion to Jesus, even while I relate to him in a utilitarian manner, tit for tat. I've been good. I've done things God's way. Uh, Therefore, God owes me blessing. God owes me a promotion or a boyfriend or a wife or influence or wealth. Fill in the blank. You treat God like a vending machine. That's building a temple to do a favor for God so that he will do a favor back for you so that he'll be in your debt. That's caging God. That's manipulating God. That's just old paganism resurfacing. Happens all the time. Examine yourself. Is that how you relate to God? I do. More often than I care to admit, in fact. And that means that my idea of God is not always really a divine idea, and it needs to be shattered time after time. We should pray for this. Do you pray for that? I prayed that for you this morning, by the way, that God would shatter it time after time. Prayed it for myself. And so we begin to see why God wants, why God, the, the, the house that David wants to build, why it gets rejected. David's reign is not the ideal time for this particular undertaking. Yet in the same breath that God vetoes David's temple plans, God gives an alternative. And this is a dream that has its source in God's own mind. So now we're going to talk about the house that God plans to build. Let's probe a few lines from verses 9 through 11. I'm not going to read all of it, but I'm going to read some of it. And God says, And David, I'm going to make, make you a great name, like the name of the great people of the earth. I'm going to appoint a place for my people Israel, and I'm going to plant them. And I will give you rest from your enemies. And moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. So David's temple plan gets scrapped. But before the combo wraps up, God says, hey, while we're on the subject of housing, let me tell you about my dream house. It's you. 
It's you. The word house appears about 15 times in this text, but now there's a double entendre in the Hebrew. On, on God's lips, here in verse 11, house refers to a lineage. It refers to a dynasty. That's the house God wants to build. It's called the house of David. And quite frankly, by focusing on a physical temple, David is actually at risk of missing out on this much more cosmic vision that God has. You see, the house that God wants to build vastly overshadows anything David could have ever imagined. And in truth, God has started, already started building that house. He's already started building this edifice. It's David himself. That's the, that's the point of verse 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you might be the prince over my people. And now God's saying that work's going to continue. David, I've been with you in the past. I'm with you right now in the present. I will be with you in the future. That is what God is communicating here. Stone houses built in honor of God or houses built in God's name, they come and go. In fact, in the centuries following this story, there are three different temples that come and go in Jerusalem, three temples that rise and fall. But as I'm going to show you, the house of David outlasts them all. There are two notable features of the house that God wants to build. They're right here in the text. First, look at verse 16. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In other words, the house of David, the house that God wants to build, it's never going to falter. It's never going to fizzle. And secondly, we should notice that there are no ifs. There are no ifs in this passage. And that's a little bit of a shift from some of the earlier covenants in the Old Testament. Those covenants often have the ominous language of if. If you don't do this, I might not keep the covenant. But that language is gone now. In contrast, in verses 14 and 15, we learn that even when David's descendants offend God, even when they stray away from God, as they do, God's commitment to this family will never rescind. God may discipline them, but he will never forsake them. That's verse 14. This is a game changer. This is a turning point for the world. It's all part of the job description that God has given himself. He is a master builder. Now, at the very beginning of this sermon, I said that 2 Samuel chapter 7 constitutes the dramatical theological, dramatic theological center of the whole Samuel story. And now we're beginning to see why. By the way, I want you to note that God's declaration, God's speech in this chapter is the longest recorded divine monologue since the time of Moses way back when. So if you've been snoozing, now's a good time to snap back. God is speaking. He's got a lot to say today. The clue to grasping the, uh, the point of this, the meaning, the full significance of the promise is right in front of us at the end of verse 13. When your days are fulfilled and when you lie down with your fathers, I'm going to raise up offspring after you, someone who actually come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he's going to build a house for my name, and I will establish his throne forever. Now, our first inclination, historically, might be to assume that God's just talking about the kings who are going to immediately and directly come from David. And that's partially true, but there's a whole lot more going on here. You see, this particular promise does not play out with fullness in the lives of any of the princes that, that followed David during the time of the Israelite monarchy. It doesn't happen. In fact, the opposite plays out. It starts with David's son, Solomon. By the time he wraps up his administration, the kingdom's pretty weak. And then when Solomon's son takes charge, the kingdom actually breaks into two. And for the rest of the time, several hundred years, there's disunity, there's rupture, and it ends with exile. That is not a throne established forever, is it? And that is why at the end of the Old Testament, the promise that God makes right here in verse 13 remains unfulfilled. So what is God revealing? What is he revealing? 
through this speech act. The history of the Israelite monarchy doesn't begin to satisfy this vision. What we're encountering in this verse is the taproot of the messianic idea in Israel. And it becomes the basis for the hope that all the prophets proclaim in the rest of the Old Testament. You see, when God speaks about David's offspring in verse 12, he literally speaks about his commitment to David's seed. That's what the Hebrew says. This chapter is talking about what's called the messianic seed. That just means that God uses certain individuals and certain families to bring a savior into this world. Starts with a guy called Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. God says, through you, through your family, I'm going to save the world. Abraham's got a son called Isaac. Doesn't happen through Isaac. Then Isaac has a son called Jacob, and the seed moves through Jacob. That's Abraham's grandson. And then from Jacob, there's a son called Judah, and David comes from the family of Judah. And so we begin to see that at the heart of the tremendous blessing that's being poured out on David right here in 2 Samuel 7, it's not a blessing that David's going to become a dynasty. That pales in comparison with the real honor. The real blessing, the real honor is that David and his lineage are going to have the privilege of being included in the human genealogy of God's Messiah. Because David's line goes right to Jesus Christ. That's what you read if you look at the genealogies in the Gospel of Matthew and of Luke. In short, David's descendants, they're each going to get to bear a blazing torch for a moment until it all culminates in Jesus, the light of the world. He's the seed. He's the one who's going to get the secure kingdom forever. He's the one who is, who is the true house for God's name, to use the phrase from verse 13. You see, in Jesus, God brings his personal rule together with one particular son of David. In Jesus Christ, God brings his personal rule together with one particular son of David. And so in the end, everything that we read here is not so much about David. It's really about the fact that God has chosen David. God has chosen David to give visibility and representation to what God is doing to save the world. And this is the larger reason why God sanctions and commits to this particular royal family in perpetuity. It certainly wasn't because they deserved it. Go read First and Second Kings. They did not deserve it. David didn't even deserve it. Just read four chapters later in the book of Second Samuel. Everybody is flawed. What I'm saying here is nothing different than what the New Testament itself says. The New Testament is filled with something called good news, gospel. It is news about something God has done, and what God has done is nothing more than what he promises to do right here in 2 Samuel 7. See, the New Testament says David's seed did continue on. Even after the throne in Jerusalem was torn down, the, the line of kings persisted. I was so tempted to include a Lord of the Rings reference right here, but I didn't. The line of kings persisted right up to Jesus of Nazareth. And if you read the Gospels, you know Jesus has a lot of different titles. He's called the Son of Man. He's called the Son of God. He's called the Lamb of God. He's called the Word of God. And he's also called the Son of David. He's called that a lot. Because the words of verse 16 are really for him. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, and your throne shall be established forever. Those are words for Jesus the Messiah. What we're discovering all of this is that God is a homemaker. And that constitutes a return to God's original vision for creation, a vision to dwell with his people. I will be your God. I am your true home, and I am the way into that home. That's what God is communicating here. And I want you to listen carefully to this. 
what God promises to achieve through the house of David, it's not just for David. It's not even just for Israel. It's actually for all of humanity. David himself discerns this. There at verse 19, he says, this is instruction for mankind, for all people. What God is doing here is for the benefit of the nations. That's how it is with all the covenants of the Bible. They are adorned by a common theme. God is for us, all of us. God is building houses for everybody, places of belonging and homes. In fact, in the end, the image of a house really isn't robust enough. God's talking about a redeemed world, a redeemed creation. And it comes through the line of David, but it is not built on David. It is built on Jesus Christ. That's why he's called the cornerstone in the New Testament. It's built on him. 2 Samuel 7 is oriented entirely to Jesus. That's why it's precious to Christians. That's the house God is building. So much more than a stone edifice. David thought he was going to do something big for God, but God's the one who's doing something big here. So, and David ends up thunderstruck. And, and I should be too. We should be too. Because David, the same God that's taken David to the stars, he also loves me. He loves you. You cannot have a cold response to this. This is a love that beckons for, for a real response. And that's what I want to consider in closing. What does it mean to abide in this house that God's built for us? God builds it, but we got to go inside. It takes two for this dream to actualize. We need to go in now. Some of you, maybe you've been on the porch for a long time, and maybe you need to come in today. Maybe today is the day you start living in God's grace. Right now, today, in this life. Jesus, Jesus did not just come so we could have life after death. He also came so we could have life before death. A couple things I want to mention here. One pertains to us as individuals. One pertains to us as a community, our shared existence. Firstly, for individuals, to abide in the house that God builds is to be a person who both yields and insists, to be a yielding insister. Then David went and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, God, and what is my house that you've brought me thus far? That's verse 18. That David sits. That's the action of inaction. That's humble yielding. Jesus calls it meekness. As they say where I'm from, David knows that at most he's a deputy sheriff. God's the real boss in this town. And so you've got to depend on him more than you depend on yourself. The Hebrew for, ver for sit in verse 18, that's the same word that's translated as dwell earlier in verse 2. And you better believe that's intentional. What the writer is saying is that David's no longer trying to do God any favors. He's not trying to build God a house to dwell in. He is dwelling in God. This guy is thunderstruck. That's why he's humble, and we should be too, because... At the end of the day, whatever David would have spent to build God a temple, God spent a ton more when he came into the world as Jesus the Messiah. Building a temple may have busted up David's bank account. Becoming a Messiah busted up Jesus' body and his life. That's the cross. That was the price that Jesus paid so that we can live in God's home, have access to God's presence. And that's what a temple's all about, isn't it? When you see the home that God has made for you, when I see that, you cease to strive and you begin to practice what I like to call strategic not doing. You learn what it means to wait on the Lord because Jesus wants to act on our behalf. And according to the Bible, that's where the, re the real action frequently starts. This memo is especially important for all the go-getters out there, people like me and Alistair. People like Chandler, people like Kate, the go-getters, the strivers, right? This is very important for us. What we do matters, but what God does matters a lot more. Be still and know that Jesus is God. Sit. This yielding, however, also has a companion. It's called insistence. 
when we enter into the house that God builds for us, when we abide, abide in that, we're not left groveling. We're not supposed to be reticent and reserved in God's presence. Read verse 25. This is David speaking. And now, O Lord, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. That's emphatic prayer. David is pleading God's promises back to him. The mood of the Hebrew here is stringent. It's pushy. My mom would think it's offensive. As verse 27 says, David's praying with courage, with tenacity, with insistence. That's the second quality for us when we abide in God's house. And this type of boldness is not irreverent. It's actually an act of great faith because God invites it. He has bound himself to us. He invites it. This is not about pestering God for all the petty things that we think we need. It is about petitioning God to actualize his utter commitment to make all things new. It's about staking your expectation for the future on God's word. To clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. That's why Christian prayer is hopeful but also forceful. It's not feeble. Do you pray like that? We should, according to the Bible, it says right as fourth of fireworks on the 4th of July. You should pray like that. To abide in God's house is to be a person who yields and insists. That's what it means for us as an individual. It also means something for us as a community. And as community groups get ready to restart at St. Peter's to crank back up, I really want to ask you to take this to heart. It's my last sermon as a pastor. Please take this to heart. Verse 24, you establish for yourself your people to be your people forever. Lord, you became their God so they would be your people. That builds on verse 23 where David reflects on everything God has been doing to transform a group of riffraff individuals into something called a community or a people. That's one of the aims of God's covenant love. It's called hesed in the Old Testament. Hesed, God's covenant love. It desires to get us together. That's a major part of God's mission. It's why God eventually became a Messiah. It's why in John chapter 13 in the New Testament, Jesus says, by our love for one another, the world will know that we live in God's house. God loves us that we might love one another. And so just as God's love builds a home for us, it also empowers us to build homes for one another, to build homes together so that we stop living like homeless orphans. And in this city, there are so many spiritual and psychological and emotional and physical orphans. We, the church, we are called to be a place where God's covenant love reverberates right into the world. That's Karl Barth. But that is not always the case. Hased. God's covenant love, it's got a lot of rivals on this planet of ours. In our day and age, the way we do a lot of our relationships with each other is increasingly shaped by the way we do retail relationships. In other words, we are constantly being conditioned every day, it'll start again this afternoon when we leave here, to, to interact with our friends and spouses, our churches, and even God himself in a retail manner, like good consumers. And retail relationships, as they should be, they're disposable. A lot of social scientists have written about this. A lot of us are experiencing it right now, and it's painful because disposable relationships create a fragmented and lonely city. The pervasiveness of retail ways of relating with each other is nowhere more apparent than in our fear of commitment, our fear of being limited. Here's what it might sound like. I don't want to be a member. I just want to come. I'm not going to go down that road. I don't want to guilt you. Or consider our hookup culture. It's about managing to have good sex without all the strong feelings and emotion that sex usually brings. 
It's about sex that allows you to slide over surfaces moving from partner to partner as effortlessly as going from website to website on your computer. One social scientist says that the pervasiveness of a retail mode of relationship has turned us into possibility junkies. We're addicted to keeping our options open. We do not commit. And further to this, just learned this last week, when we actually do commit, we often flake out at the last minute. Guilty as charged. It's called bailing. David Brooks at the New York Times says that we live in the golden age of bailing. We bail on our close friends because we think they'll understand. We bail on distant friends because they don't matter so much. That's what David Brooks says. We love options. We fear commitment. It's bad for us. This so-called freedom, it comes at a price. We all feel it. Vancouver groans with it. And so we need to start doing more covenant love. We need to learn to be stickers. It's about becoming people who limit our options for the sake of community, for the sake of genuine relationship. Our hearts and our hearts desperately need that. That's what it means to be together, to abide together in the house of God. And you know what? There's a secret to happiness in this. Here's the secret. It's a bit of a paradox. There's nothing more liberating than covenant love. There's nothing more freeing than commitment. Think about that. There's nothing more liberating than know that knowing that you have a group of friends who would do anything for you. People you can count on, being part of a community that really sticks together. But that can only happen if everyone is limiting their individual freedom by making commitments to each other. And then you get inside and you discover a much more profound freedom. We have all known the long loneliness and we have learned that the only solution is love and that that comes from community. That's how Dorothy Day put it. The Bible says that God's covenant love for us is the bedrock and the inspiration and the power for the type of community and relationship that we all crave and that we will, quite frankly, wither without. That love is promised right here to David, and it is proved in the life and death of Jesus the Messiah to abide in God's houses, to revel in that love. And when we do, God makes us into the family we were created to be. Those who come into God's house, those who taste his grace, not only find a home, but also become people who make homes for others. Let's do that together. A Christian I really admire once said, grace has to find expression in life, otherwise it's not grace. It's got to find expression concretely in our life, otherwise it's not grace. So may everything that I'm saying here, may it therefore not just be something that we ponder, may it be something that we practice.